Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Conventional opening returned. Perfect execution. We we stuck the landing. Tens all around. Guys, I want to read you an email we got yesterday and then sort of uh, reflect on, 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 do a little meta podcast discussion. Okay, so... Uh, Hello all. I listen to your podcast every day, typically among my slate of listens, typically first among my slate of listens. Six months ago, yours was my favorite podcast to recommend to others, but of late, your fixation on teachers' unions and Andrew Cuomo have become unbearable. How can I possibly recommend a podcast whose hosts endlessly wallow in their private obsessions far beyond any real news value? You may even lose me as a listener soon. It's a bigger country and a, it's a big country and a bigger world. You can offer your listeners so much more <clears throat> than this repetitive sludge. P.S. To John, you're a terrific thinker, but the biggest tell that any particular argument is weak is that you slip into erecting straw men and mockery. It's juvenile. So this is the email. I don't want to talk about the you know particular insult uh, to me uh, because uh, he's erecting a straw man and I and 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 doing personal insults and I consider that juvenile. But um, I did want to talk a little bit about this question we 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 reflect on as we think about doing this, which is: Are we talking too much about the teachers? Are we talking too much about the teachers because Christine and Noah and I all have school aged children? Uh, are we talking too much about Andrew Cuomo because we live in New York? Um, and uh, I think the answer is that um, we, uh, to be completely frank, we are ventilating our private obsessions. Um, it's been a, almost a year since we started the daily podcast. I think it'll be, it's two weeks shy of a year. And um, we started doing it because there was a crisis and we thought, you know, why don't we just, you know, t- treat this like it's an emergency and we'll we'll do this a little more often. Uh, and then I have to say that aside from the fact that people were so generous and thought, kind and thoughtful talking about how much they, they enjoyed it and uh, were listening to it, um, it was also a way for the four of us to remain connected as um, uh, editors and thinkers and people who have to uh, produce... A, uh, you know, a material for a daily website and material for a monthly magazine to keep us together and connected. Like uh, I've seen Abe a few times in the last year, but I have not laid eyes on Christine or Noah except through uh, these uh, computer chats that we have every day. But, you know, I think we all feel closer than ever in some ways. And so there is a private obsessional quality to this and, you know, doing the thing where you say, well, what would people want to hear? What would, what would people rather hear about or think about than what we what we are interested in talking about? And I apologize because there's a siren coming down 7th Avenue here, if you can't hear it. Um, hearing what people... It's so you know, local. It's yeah. too local, John. I'm sorry. All this ambient my, noise yes, really doesn't my... appeal to people outside yeah. your little bubble. That's right. Anyway, can I just can I, I just want to yes. say one other Go thing? Ahead. It's not it's not just that this da- that moving to the daily podcast kept us all kind of professionally connected. It actually, I mean, at least I speak for myself. It kept us kind of sane, right? I mean, ha- ha- getting up every morning and trying to make sense of the madness and the constantly shifting narratives and the different news coming at you from many different directions. This it's very grounding, just as as you know, colleagues and friends to be able to sit here and kind of parse it through with people who. We don't always agree with each other, but we we always, I think, treat each other with respect and try to listen. And I hope that that's actually one of the things that our listeners have benefited from is listening to people in good faith try to hash out all this chaos over the last year. Yeah. I have one other thing to say. If you are not subscribing to commentary, if you are not paying for the publication, um, if you are not... uh, if you are just listening because you uh, subscribe to it, uh, that's great. Happy to entertain you and all that. But um, don't bitch at us. Like we're, you know, y- you know. If you're a paying customer, I'm listening to you. I'm apologizing to you if you're annoyed. 
and all of that. But if you're not a paying customer, uh, we're not a television network. Yeah, we have some ads. We don't make that much money from them. And uh, you can basically listen or not listen. Uh, the, the the numbers of listeners are uh, gratifying in a sort of weird, um, you know, are we getting through to people sense? And obviously we want to, we, but one of the things we want to do is get our views across to people to try to, you know, influence them to the extent that we can do so with good argument and, and, and reason. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna sort of focus on our private obsessions to, to, to some extent, if we can, if we can advance them, I would say in the case of Andrew Cuomo, it may sound like this is a local issue because three of us live in or around New York. Uh, it's not because Andrew Cuomo, of course, became a national figure and the, and the, the sort of, um, representative of a certain way of dealing with treating and handling the public policy response to the pandemic uh, that was problematic from the minute he started. And Abe, I'm sorry. No, and and I think there are all sorts of um, topics that are related to the what's happening with Cuomo that are that make it far more um, than a private obsession or even a local story. I mean, it's there's the question of media responsibility, um, uh, how, how they built him up, um, uh, despite there being evidence that maybe uh, they should not have all along. Um, there's the leadership accountability, and there are this, this sort of cultural double standards um, that that may or may not arise in in his as he you know faces accusers and 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 whatever else. I mean, so there's it, it's not like it's a story that's not connected to the larger trends and issues in the country. There's also a philosophical ideal <clears throat> on display here that has been a problem in all media which is the exercise of editorial judgment. It is an editor's responsibility to tell you what you need to know, not to be moved by the passions that stir on social media and chase them for advertising dollars and eyeballs and clicks. That's an abdication of an editor's responsibility. So to the extent that we curate topics for you, it's because you value, benefit from them. That is a value to you, hopefully. Well, there's also and there's also an issue, I think, particularly with Cuomo and the use of emergency powers for which he was kind of overpraised at the beginning and is only now being held to account for abusing in in our federalist system. This past year has been a huge test of our democracy in a number of ways, not just the pandemic, but the election and, and all of its aftermath. And I think there's a sense in which, you know, we do need to tell particular stories about particular politicians, which can cast light on some of these broader questions, because he's not the only governor who abused his powers or the only public official who who's proven to be hypocritical about some of his professed values. These are actually trends that we see in other areas. So I, and I really hope that some of our listeners who live in places like, say, Michigan, who had a governor who was kind of mad with power for a while, too, can can relate to some of the broader political and um, questions about democracy that we've hopefully continued to explore. I think we can also talk a little bit about why we are so focused on teachers unions in a way that will reveal that we're not just doing this because we're parents. For one thing, uh, my kids do not go to public schools and have been in school to the extent that it is possible for people to be in school during a pandemic. Um, from September onward, which gives me a different kind of perspective because I actually know that schools can be open because my kids are going to school uh, and they're going to school because we they go they go for fee for service um, and these schools are not only have 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 missions to educate uh, uh, they also um, because they are functioning institutions that de- that that rely on uh, you know, what you might call a sort of consumer base or a customer base, even though you don't think about schools that way. Um, they moved heaven and earth to do whatever they could to make sure that as many people could be in school as possible. And so uh, I know that this is something that can be done. And so uh, the fact that it is not being done in so many places uh, and with such cavalier disregard for the uh, educational and spiritual and mental health of America's children uh, provide, you know, uh, haunts me in, in a way that is different from the actual experience that Christine is having, which is she is going through the experience of having two boys in school who cannot go to school, who are not being allowed to go to school at, in in high school. And uh, Noah has some of this, uh, not quite in the same fashion. Um, 
but uh, there is no more pressing issue in American public life than the mental health crisis among adolescents, which, you know, uh, the number of emergency room admissions, or I don't know, I guess you call them admissions, for uh, teenagers reporting self-harm or doing self-harm has risen 100% in the last year. 100%, which means it is exclusively and entirely pandemic-related. And we sit here, uh, there are 75 million American kids under the age of 18, and we are focused on the 4 million uh, adults who, uh, who are paid to watch and educate them. And uh, this is a horrible balance. And how we got into the position where this balance has happened is a gigantic public policy issue that uh, touches on all sorts of issues. The relation of the individual to the state, the responsibilities of state government, the the, the role of public sector unions, the way in which uh, politics uh, is manipulated by interest groups, uh, in, in a way to the detriment of the, of the larger uh, mass of people. Um, and the fact that uh, uh, it is, there is now, we are moving into a, a period in which if you do not somehow organize uh, in life, uh, only organized protest or organized groups are able to, to be uh, represented in the public debate. It, you know, it's like you have to have a parents' movement, which is a ridiculous concept since so many people are parents. You shouldn't need to have a parents' movement, you know, like everyone was a child once, and so everyone had parents and people have children and all of that. The notion that that requires a an organized movement to fight against the organized employees who are there to serve this group um, is pretty haunting and suggests something about the degeneration of our representative democracy and how it functions. Well, there's and there's really I've been um, struck recently by how a lot of the language of frustrated parents, of which I include myself in that group, obviously, as our listeners know from my rantings, the, there's a crisis of accountability right now that's being felt by, you know, just average Americans who are con- confronting a system that to which they gave the benefit of the doubt and kind of took extreme measures to support during a pandemic. And now that the tides are turning, thankfully, in terms of, you know, how the pandemic is going, asking their public officials, asking teachers, asking teachers unions, okay, so now you're now we're all accountable. We've been accountable. What do we do going forward? And to be told time and time again, Meh, nothing. We, we don't want to do that that's not accountability. So I feel like, you know, we talk a lot about the crisis of institutions and, you know, people's faith in our system and how that's eroding. One of the ways that arose, and we discussed this a little bit yesterday with the elite panic, is when the people to whom uh, one pleads for accountability don't just say, I'm not accountable, but literally treat you with contempt. And that that that's a system that, that cannot rebuild the trust that we all need to be see rebuilt right now. There's been a durable half century, a century and a half long consensus in this country around the need for at least the utility of a a free publicly provided education system in this country across partisan boundaries, much to the frustration of conservative reformers. And it is being eroded before our eyes. The um, ABC News had a report yesterday compiling states um, that uh, had lost contact with children and found that approximately 3 million children in this country are just unaccounted for it. Now they didn't, they, to them, they just dropped off the radar, but of course they didn't disappear. They're not getting zero education. They're getting alternative forms of education under the radar that aren't being monitored that we don't understand. It's contributing to an atomization of society that we, we don't really know what's on the other side of that. And to fail to chronicle that, I mean, the, uh, the New York times had a great report the other day that, uh, that the, uh, Sacramento and California's governor has created a bunch of incentives for teachers to return to the classroom, $2 billion in new funding, putting them at the top of the vaccination list. And they said the design was to lure teachers back to the classroom. They had to be lured like they're angler fish. Uh, it's just a shocking thing to say about people who are contributing a public service on the public dime. And for that to shatter is going to create a lot of instability. And you need to be aware of that. 
Okay, so we we need to talk about what Texas has decided to do. But before we do that, uh, I want to talk about as we represent a certain type of uh, effort to uh, to talk about the alternative view in the United States on some of these things. I want to talk to you about a uh, a, the brilliant financial management uh, team at the Bonson Group that attempts to provide an alternative view to the financial services industry in the form of extraordinarily detailed and specific research and information about markets and the intersection of politics and policy. As I keep telling you, you can sample their wares uh, daily at the dctoday.com and weekly at dividendcafe.com. These, uh, these, websites or email newsletters, whatever whatever you want to call them, web-based uh, informational services, uh, look at uh, uh, the markets and look at uh, the public policymakers and consider the question of how the virus is affecting uh, America's purchasing power and uh, where we're going with inflation, where we're going with jobs, uh, what this means for the investment climate and does so in a way that is uh, really quite revolutionary uh, in some senses in a in a field in which, uh, as as the Bonson Group says, so many financial advisors only work twenty five or thirty hours a week, and their understanding of uh, politics and policy is at a you know is at a very junior high school level, um, and uh, and and they're just basically there to going along to get along rather than using. Uh, brain power and research to really study and understand what will happen with your money and your investments uh, in this um, unprecedented moment. So the dctoday.com, dividendcafe.com, these are the products of the Bonson Group with $2.5 billion under management, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. Um, so Governor Greg Abbott in Texas has announced that Texas is doing 100% reopening, by which he means uh, that the state will no longer mandate masks, uh, whatever. You know, the state is out of the mandate business. Uh, localities will have the right to do certain types of mandates. And of course, every individual business will have the right to say, you can't come in without a mask or, you you know, we're going we're gonna to have six feet apart spacing or whatever, but the Austin is no longer going to dictate uh, these uh, terms. And I think it's fair to say that the reaction uh, in the blue states and in various other ways has been uh, extremely alarmed, shocked, appalled, uh, particularly given that the new CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, has said the numbers aren't looking good. We could be seeing a fourth wave, outbreak wave. Variants are coming. This is just, she hasn't mentioned Texas, but like this could be a hot house for variant spread and 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 all of that. So um, Greg Abbott, of course, just took a huge hit over the last month uh, because of the way that the uh, Texas handled or didn't handle or whatever the uh, the cold snap and the energy crisis that led so many people not to have water and some people froze to death. The food distribution was was terrible and all that. And there is some sense in which you understand that he might be looking to change the subject and give a win to his own uh, side, you know, like reestablish his connection to his base, which are very annoyed by the mandates in general. Um, what do we make of this, Abe? Well, you know, in Texas, uh, the active cases right now are very low, um, especially considering uh, the size of the, of the state's population. Active cases right now in Texas uh, of cases of, of the virus are 172,258. To compare that to California, for example, uh, has uh, 1,645,000. Uh, New York has California. California only has... Right. So California has... Close to double the population of te- Texas is the second largest. Not, not, not that much. Union. Yeah, yeah, but not that much. Right, but te- California is thirty-eight million, and Texas is like twenty-two million or something like that. Twenty-eight, New York is 28 like, million. Texas is twenty-eight million. Okay, yeah. so Texas has a fifth of California's cases, uh, and seventy uh, percent of the population, or something like that, right? right. And yeah. so New York, which has four times the number of cases, is smaller, right? 
than Texas. New York is, I think, 16 or 17 million people now. Okay, so. Yeah. So, I mean, among other things, I mean, the thing that we've been saying that it makes sense throughout the course of the pandemic is that there is no one size fits all approach to any of this. I mean, different states have are facing different situations at different times. Um, so I think this makes perfect sense. And, you know, I was talking to a friend uh, yesterday who's in uh, television and he says, if not for Texas and Florida, um, where he was uh, able to shoot uh, things th- throughout this pandemic, his business would have folded. Um, and uh, that's not, he's not alone. And it's not just, um, you know, television. Uh, these, it's, 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 it's important that, that there are places that have allowed people to continue to um, make money and exist and keep their families going and keep their businesses afloat and, and whatnot. So I think um, uh, uh, there's a lot to be thankful for in, in, in this approach, especially given the numbers where they are in Texas. Christine? Um, I was also going to say that this is actually, I mean, I hope this is the beginning of a kind of domino effect, particularly across uh, the states and the country that are going to pretty soon be experiencing much warmer weather. I mean, in the deep south, there already are. Um, you can do a lot of things. You can take a lot of things outdoors and still keep it safe, even if you're worried about, you know, a, a new spike or a new variant or this, that and the other. Um, one thing we have learned scientifically about this virus is that the, the concern about super spreaders or super spreader events should, is mainly an indoor concern, right? I mean, we actually talked at length about, you know, all the protests and the rallies and whatnot that were outdoors over the this past summer and how it didn't actually lead to, you know, a, a huge spike in cases. This is a good thing. There are lots of things that you can do outdoors that are healthy, that are socialish, not not social in the way that we all used to be. Um, uh, there are controversies developing uh, here on the East Coast about whether the baseball season is going to have any uh, way for fans to actually celebrate and the teams play in front of fans. In D.C., the mayor's already said no. The Nationals can play, but no one can watch them. A lot of these choices are, are, are going to become more and more political um, in the way that the school stuff was, too, because in places like Texas and in Florida and across the Deep South and in, in the Southwest, you can do this stuff outdoors. You can hold you can hold classes outside. You can have events outside. Not all, but I actually, I, I think it's great that he, that is, it's a bold maneuver, but I think it's one that isn't just for his base, John. I think it actually sends a, a signal because Texas is a very independent and large state in this country. And it, it, it's a good sign. And I hope it gives, I know Mississippi has also followed suit. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think their governor also announced opening. More governors should step up and do this. I mean, it is an experiment in a certain way because we... But it's time. It's time for that. (laughs) Right. But the problem here is this notion, which is that we are seeing variants. Variants are more contagious. People are getting vaccinated, but I think we're at, I don't know, 10 or 12% of the population that's now been vaccinated, not 50 or 60%. And uh, will will this second largest state in the union, uh, having extraordinarily relaxed rules of the road, will that uh, inadvertently and not not purposefully uh, lead to? Uh, will it make it a host for uh, these more contagious variants that uh, will race into the population again? before everybody has the protection they need from it uh, through the vaccine. So well, I don't think that that's a concern that, that can be just dismissed as part of the, we've had enough and we need to experiment because the virus doesn't know borders. Like, you know, Texas's rules on, on X uh, don't matter if the virus goes uh, into, you know, uh, into Oklahoma and into Alabama and other places, but it's it's not an experiment without precedent. I mean, uh, in Florida, you've you've been you've been allowed to sort of use your own judgment, both as a customer and a citizen and as a business owner, for a long time. And uh, the record there is certainly better than California's, where where the lockdowns were um, intense and uh, longstanding, and no worse than New York's, um, where the lockdowns were also um, more intense. 
Yeah, there's right. no mask mandate <clears throat> in Florida, and you're prohibited from issuing fines for failing to abide by local mask ordinances. The same is true in Georgia, but there's sort of a public pressure campaign for you to to do that, you know, just to be responsible. Um, the problem with uh, Mississippi and uh, Texas are they have really low vaccination rates relative to the rest of the country. I think Georgia's probably close to the worst, but uh, Texas is like second worst. Mississippi's um, up there. And I mean, of um, course, Texas had an interruption in the vaccine flow, right? Because of because sure. of the week of the storms. But that still that still would suggest that if you were looking to be prudent, you wouldn't do you wouldn't you know you wouldn't drop everything today. You might wait a week to get the vaccine. But they also rates have up, right? bad health health outcomes in these states, um, pre- pre- preceding the events that occurred last year, um, that the prevalence of comorbidities in general, uh, health problems in those populations uh, has contributed to a general uh, poor performance over the course of the pandemic. So yeah, I'm with you. I don't think these are, this is something that you can simply dismiss. Um, I do think that there's a fair bit of terror over the prospect, particularly in in dark blue states in the Northwest and um, on the Pacific coast, over the prospect of people exercising their good judgment because they don't believe people have good judgment. They don't believe people can can manage their own affairs competently and uh, maintain the understanding that their individual conduct uh, has an effect on everybody around them and three, four, three, two, three, four degrees removed from themselves. Um, and that is the collectivist ideal. It is that there's no such thing as personal conduct, it's that everything is interconnected and therefore everything needs to be regulated appropriately. Okay, so I, I'm... I'm- I am not I my desire my my I believe that the states need to do things differently and uh, you guys uh, Abe makes uh the best case possible uh and and you all do um and this notion that you know we need to see how it goes again the problem with we need to see how it goes and I understand that this sort of like ends up uh, providing canon theory end up providing a blank check to the people who want America to remain closed forever is that while we have a federal a federalized system that makes you know each gives each state you know uh, sovereign control over certain aspects the virus doesn't only exist and we collect data by state but the virus doesn't exist along state lines and so you know uh if somebody in Oklahoma gets it because somebody in Texas was you know irresponsible um uh, how do you, how does an Oklahoman? That's, that, that's been I, I, okay. the case. That's been the case the entire pandemic. I mean, I think the, the real challenge is going to come because our system is not going to allow the coercion of people to get the vaccine. So you're going to have places and we already see these and, and the populations that are holdouts are not necessarily the uneducated white poor Trump voters that a lot of our elite media tend to think they are. They're holdouts in their own coalition that are going to refuse and are refusing vaccination. We're not a country, and, and I know no, this is this is a particular bugbear for Noah and I share it, we're not going to demand pa- vaccine passports, which is really the only way to answer that question, I think, from a federal government perspective, John, which is to say you have to show that you've been vaccinated to do all this stuff. We are not, I don't think, going to tolerate that. Um, at least at the at the national level. And we shouldn't because there are a huge number of risks and dangers that presents. But I think I feel like we've I, I've seen so many stories over the past year about how, you know, people left uh, people in New York were partying and then they went to Florida for spring break and then they went here and there. And, and there have been a lot of there has been a lot of churn because human beings can't stay locked up forever. Most of us. Um, so I don't I mean, I share the concern and I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of the virus, but from a political standpoint, we have to get to the point where we're saying we're vaccinating, where, you know, it, the, the numbers are all going down. We've got it. We've, and we're going to collapse as a society and as an economy if we don't open up our state. Um, interesting. Very interesting. Uh, and and again, I think nobody believes that lockdown is, uh, you know, no one thinks it's worse than I think it is. Um, masking is a slightly different story because all these terms get, get confused together. Like people call things quarantining. I notice if I, I watch a talk show or something, celebrities say, well, I've been, I'm quarantining and they're not quarantining. They're just like staying home because they don't have jobs, but they're not, you know, quarantining is a very specific term. 
And wearing a mask is not being locked down. In fact, wearing a mask is, in theory, the uh, way to get out of a lockdown, right? It's the the notion that you everyone should be able to go about and 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 go about their day, um, but do things that mitigate the possibility that they might have the virus unknowingly and spread it to somebody else. So, just as a matter of good fellowship and good citizenship, you wear a mask. If in Texas, these get entirely confused. So the idea is, fantastic, I don't have to wear my mask anymore. I'm not sure that that's the best understanding. Now, I think there is something silly, though uh, I do it, and Abe does it, I think, and Christine, you probably do it, like, you're not going to spread the virus outdoors unless you, like, unless you have it and then you spit on somebody, uh, nearby, right? This is the whole reason that the super spreader events didn't happen uh, where people thought they were going to happen in Florida on beaches and things like that because the virus does not survive well outdoors even in the cold and it and it's when it's inside that it matters. But you still walk around with your mask on because that is now the way that you express your the fact that you are a good citizen for, you know, in, in a place like New York where there's still we're still the caseload is very high, for example. But um, I think people have gotten this all jumbled up in their heads. Now, most people don't live in a place in which they mostly walk around or take public transportation or something like that. They're mostly in their homes, in their cars. Uh, you know, if they're outside, they're not in crowded places. Unless, but when they're inside, if they're in a mall or they're in a restaurant or something like that, um. You know, I'm a little that unnerves but, me a little bit. But uh, people wear masks in Florida. I mean, they, they don't have to, but they, they do. do. They do, right? You know, they, yeah. they, you you see the footage of you know they'll, they'll show like uh, there's like one supermarket where everyone was refusing yeah. to wear a mask. But overwhelmingly, my understanding is that is that they do. They 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 choose to wear them. Yeah. It's just not enforced. Right. right. No, so, I spent anyway. I spent some yeah. time in Florida, and yes, you do in the airport in in any public indoor building, um, people are putting on masks, and you might see an occasional holdout here or there, mm-hmm. but it's it's the same level of mask shaming that I see in Washington D.C. when I walk on the street. Like it's people are doing it. It's you know it's not that. But big in a the deal. absence of an honest conversation about <clears throat> where you're at when you're post vaccine, two weeks after you've gotten that second dose, and you're still being enforced. Masking is still a social norm, if not a, a, a legal requirement, or at least a, a semi-legal requirement. Um, I don't see the conditions in where we can have an honest conversation about that, because it has become something much more of an accessory that demonstrates your commitment to being a socially responsible individual than it has any medical value, any scientific value. And well, that's the, something well, that I don't think rebelling against is an unhealthy form of social expression either. Well, you know, something just popped into my head, one of these like weird, you know, uh, associations that maybe is ridiculous, but for liberals on the left, wearing a mask in certain settings is sort of like what having a flag pin was after 9-11 for conservatives with their politicians. And there was all that like, he's not wearing a flag pin, you know? Why isn't that liberal congressman wearing a flag pin? Yeah, I I think that is is such a good point, but it... It's it's worse. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with wearing a flag pin, but it's but it's worse. I'll tell you what I mean. In that, the the flag pin we know is overtly is by definition symbolic. Um, the right. symbolism of the mask is um, sort of masked is hidden, right? It's it's it is it, it it's sort of um, the interest in it is the scientific uh, practical benefit. But in fact, its power is the hidden power is in is, right. is in the symbolism. Right. Let's talk about hidden power and symbolism because uh, it is central to our second sponsor today, which is Mark Gerson's book, The Telling. I'm talking about see all month uh, in the lead up to to Passover, The Telling: How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. This is a book about the Haggadah, the uh, Passover, the guide uh, and the text. Uh, to and read at the Passover Seder. Um, it's a sort of thrilling intellectual historical uh, journey through this uh, really remarkable compendium text uh, that is used by Jews all over the world, both in uh, in communities all over the world, uh, about a thousand years old or a little older. Um, and Mark just sort of digs deep into the meaning of it. I'm just going to give you one little 
taste. Um, he points out that in a, one of the weirdest things uh, at the Seder, one of the most amusing things in some ways, is that um, we we Jews, when we get together uh, and start the Seder, we, we sing the table of contents. Uh, there are 15 sections of the Seder, and uh, there is uh, the order of the Seder uh, lists the 15 at the beginning of the Haggadah, uh, and you uh, you sing it, uh, you know, like that. And so you sing the 15, uh, you sing the table of contents. What is this about? Because we call it the order of the Seder, and the Seder is about the journey from bondage to freedom. And the order of the Seder and the fact that we ritualistically read the same document every year in this way and sing the table of contents connects both the freedom that is represented by the by the uh, escape from the exodus from Egypt and the order that is provided to the Jewish people by Jewish law, Jewish tradition, and Jewish, uh, and uh, the rules that undergird uh, Judaism. Uh, the Seder is, means order. Uh, so as he says, the Seder is named order. It looks like order. It is structured like order. And then it begins. Uh, as the scholar Erica Brown points out, the evening incorporates planned and unplanned spills. Its fundamental food will crack into crumbs. Seder participants drink four cups of wine. They're singing, reclining, hiding, seeking, and finding, doors opening and closing. And there's conversation, lots of it from a set text, but designed to lead in new, different, and original directions that speak to where each of us is today and would like to be later. The disorder is so sprawling that one wonders if whoever named the event Seder did so with a sense of humor. But in fact, this is one of the Judaism's most serious truths, that order, freedom cannot exist without order, that order is the key to freedom, and that is one of the many lessons that you will learn from the telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life by Mark Gerson. Go order it today. Um, okay, so where do we go from here? So we've now talked about Texas. We've talked about how we're, we're bad and boring uh, because have, we talk about the same things over and over again. I have a question that's actually prompted by there's a great UK libertarian um, uh, magazine called Spiked, and they ask a really interesting question uh, this morning. One of their writers asks, "Is Joe Biden a Nazi?" This is, of course, you know the answer is no. But the point was to say, here is a president who's been who's bombed the Middle East, is detaining migrant children, and is railing against you know the media not being fair to him. So these were all things that, of course, you know, a, a few not, not that long ago would get you branded a Nazi if you were Trump. So, but I do think actually these questions about how Biden is conducting both um, uh, the question of immigration policy and particularly uh, Middle East policy in the case of Iran are worth examining because it. The amount of time that's elapsed between the Trump administration and the Biden administration is quite short, but the pivot in terms of how it's framed is dramatic. Well, so um, Biden uh, has done two things, right? He has sent out this olive branch to Iran, and he's uh, bombed Iranian assets in Syria. Uh, either this is a contradiction, or it's a strategy, or it's both, <laughs> It's a contradiction that looks like it's a strategy or it's a strategy that look like, looks like it's a contradiction or it's a failed strategy or it's a failed contradiction. I don't know how to slice this and we don't really know yet, right? But um, Noah, the Iranians uh, have now responded, right, to our, to our uh, solicitation of them. Yes, or rather obsequious overtures have been rebuffed. Um, <clears throat> so this was reported at the time, but the Obama administration sent out feelers to our allies in Europe who would communicate them to Iran in order to uh, create the conditions where we could engage in bilateral negotiations, um, uh, United States and Iranian representatives. And th they were rather unceremoniously uh, ignored um, and actually uh, outright um, rebuffed. They said that they, uh, the United States policy towards Iran has not changed. And until it does, meaning sanctions relief, presumably there will be no opportunities for negotiation. Um, Iran is racing towards fissionable capability and there's very few options that we have at this stage to arrest that progress or to degrade that progress outside of kinetic action. Um, and I don't see a way for us to get off that train 
in the near future. And it's going to come to a head within the next 18 months. By kinetic action, you mean the actual strikes at Iran, Iran's nuclear facilities? No, or, yeah, or um, this covert action, um, cyber action, mm-hmm. but activity. Right. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that basically from 2007 onward, the United States, uh, or 2009 onward, let's say, the United States decided that it was going to pursue a friendly, an effort to integrate Iran into this and into that while relying on uh, another power uh, who, uh, who, whom the president of the United States, the president treated like crap uh, to take care, to make sure that Iran... Iran's ability to do what it wanted to do with nuclear weapons was degraded and 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 made made much more difficult. Um, uh, not notwithstanding how much Barack Obama hated Bibi Netanyahu, it is inarguable that uh, his ability to uh, consider the Iran deal was in part made possible by the fact that he knew that Israel was there taking care that Iran could not get the nuke as fast as it wished. You know, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Abe. I think what's going to be interesting now is that we spoke some weeks ago about what role the pro-Iran <clears throat> activists in the Biden administration would actually play in policymaking. Well, now we're going to get a chance to see this and, and, and it's an early um, view uh, into where things are going to go. Um, does, does the Biden administration come back in Iran with all sorts of, um, concessions and goodies, uh, the way the Obama administration does, um, or is there less room to do that? And so do they not do that? And, uh, if things stall out here, um, do, are the, the pro-Iran activists in the administration then sort of at odds with the administration and, um, you know, uh, view them as a sort of, you know, typical establishment anti-Iran blob uh, that they couldn't budge. Well, you know, uh, another test case that I think uh, speaks, uh, makes the Biden administration's approach on foreign policy uh, a little more interesting than we might have expected that it would be, uh, is this uh, stuff over the last week in relation to the release of the CIA's assessment of the role, <clears throat> pretty much of the of, of of Mohammed bin Salman, the the essentially the effective effective leader of Saudi Arabia in the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the the Saudi uh, dissident uh, who uh, was a you know once a month columnist for the Washington Post, um, who was of course dismembered, uh, killed, and then uh, his body chopped up in the in uh, in the Saudi. Uh, embassy or mission wherever in in turkey um uh they had uh they had an open hand to do whatever it was that they wanted to do here because uh uh the mainstream media had decided that the that the that the disgusting and appalling murder of, of khashoggi uh, was an event so egregious and horrible in every possible way that uh it was would not have said anything negative about the Biden administration had it decided to indict uh, Mohammed bin Salman or do something or other. And instead, what it did was it released the report, it talked about how a terrible thing happened, and then it didn't do anything. Um, See, this is an interesting thing because uh, had it really wanted to tilt toward Iran, uh, going after Mohammed bin Salman would have been a very good way to do that like that would have been the signal we are you know we're not we are taking sides against saudi arabia in this existential struggle between iran and saudi arabia the fact that they did not do that and by the way they really shouldn't have done it and this whole there's a there's a a a kind of i wouldn't say madness but um you know is Mohammed bin Salman possibly a psychopath because he ordered in, in, uh, Khashoggi's murder. Maybe uh, uh, should we? Uh, you know, is the murder of one person sufficient unto the day to upend all of U.S. foreign policy? No. I mean, is this a tough world we live in, where we are? We live in a 
we live in a world in which we have to deal with horrible tough customers do we have do we make deals with china which is which has you know a million people in constant million uyghurs in concentration camps yes i mean you know so does does iran murder innocent journalists yes Yes, on a, on, a, on a fairly regular basis. It just doesn't do so in a particularly graphic way. And to be fair, or, you know, that we know of, and, and to be fair, obviously, Khashoggi was a, was a U.S. I don't know, resident. I don't know. He was a legal U.S. resident. So his standing as a, he wasn't an American citizen, but he, but he had some standing as a legal resident of the United States. And, and obviously, there are things that could or should be done to express our outrage. But, um, gigantic things are happening in the Middle East, not just in relation to Iran. You know, you have this thaw between Israel and the Sunni Arab states. You have, you know, uh, uh, synagogues and Chabad houses and kosher restaurants opening in the UAE. You have tourism. I, I don't know, some gigantic number of Israelis have actually traveled now <laughs> to to the UAE uh, since uh, since relations were established. Um, and you have the restrictions on civil rights in Saudi Arabia, which has been engineered by, by MBS. I mean, a lot of this actually, I I think you're right that we can't upend our foreign policy and our, our, our interests in the Arabian peninsula over this. Um, I think that the Trump administration deserves some, uh, criticism for being too deferential to, uh, what happened here and refusing to acknowledge it. The release of this report is sufficiently embarrassing that it constitutes a protest. Um, and the one that doesn't sacrifice our, our interests or our relations with Riyadh. Um, so it's probably more valuable, but this is a particular, um, f- person on the left, not necessarily in the press, but on the left who has been trying to find ways to sever America's relationship with Saudi Arabia since forever before that. I mean, the one that comes to mind most recently in the last decade was the Obama administration's very reluctant and the Trump administration's much more enthusiastic um, support of the Saudi policing action in Yemen. When the uh, Houthis took control of uh, Sana'a and threatened the Gulf of Aden, which, you know, is a really very critical uh, strait through which a whole lot of commerce goes from the Indian Ocean into the Mediterranean. And the proce- prospect of that commerce being choked off or threatened or the strait being mined or something like that is an existential crisis. It's one that we would have been obliged to respond to with the full force of the United States military. And supporting this uh, proxy action was the path of least resistance. But there was no effort to suss out what our actual interests were in that situation. It was all pathos and it was all it was very emotional displays of distaste for how the saudis conduct war which is true it was it was a pretty aggressive campaign on their part and not very interested in minimizing collateral damage the alternative to that is direct u.s military action does anybody think about these same people would be obliged to to support that kind of thing no of course not i mean you know there is a there 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 is a difference between uh a a foreign policy uh, dedicated to the advancement of, of human rights and an emotive foreign policy that is reactive to, you know, momentary horrors. Um, so, for example, if, uh, if a government uses chemical weaponry against uh, its, own, its own citizens, that may be a time to act. If, uh, if individual revenge is taken in the form of a state-sanctioned murder of one <clears throat> journal, one person, um, that is a uh, that is a wholly different matter you know uh the not everything is the same as everything else not every event has equal weight and this is the problem with being around this is one of the reasons that you know george washington warned uh, in his farewell address about entangling alliances abroad. The United States was supposed to be, you know, force would go to moral nation and all these other countries are gross and grubby and terrible. And so we should just stay away because they're going to, they're, they're, they're diseased and they're going to entangle us in their old fashioned evil. And you can see that's a very important tradition in American thought and American spiritual, American spiritual understanding. And it is impossible. Because uh, another way of looking at human rights is that is that uh, 
uh, MBS psychopath in relation to uh, Jamal Khashoggi, um, may be the greatest force for human rights in the Persian Gulf that we've ever seen. We just don't know yet. I mean, as you say, there's been a lot of um, there have been a lot of actions taken to uh, free up the. Uh, some of my friend Daniel Pipes once said, um, you know, he said that uh, Saudi Arabia was, with the exception of North Korea, the most unfree country in the world. By which he meant that the rules and regulations and role of the state and the religion that was, you know, co-equal with the state and all of that meant that no one had freedom in any sense that we understand freedom. It's not that they were living in total oppression. It's that they were unfree. You know, these are sort of different, these are sort of different ways of thinking about it. That is not true of Saudi Arabia anymore. And just as you can't dismiss China as, you know, being the same as it ever was after, you know, after the greatest, uh, you know, sort of economic growth lifting, a, you know, 2 billion people out of poverty in just 40 years. You can't just say, well, China's terrible in every possible way. It is terrible, but there's also this other stuff. And it's the same thing with MBS and Saudi Arabia. These are, these are massive historic changes in a place that was completely sclerotically fixed in its uh, approach to things. And so, you know, life is complicated. The world is very complicated and you can't just live in it as you wish it was. You have to live in it as it is. And, you know, living with life as it is also means dealing with the debts that you incur. And, you know, that credit card, the one you've been afraid to look at to see what the balance is. If you've been avoiding your debt, it's time to confront it and Upstart can help you face it and finally pay it off. If you have multiple credit cards, you know that trapping, tracking multiple balances, due dates, website logins can be stressful. Upstart makes things simple with one monthly payment in one place. It's the fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Upstart finds smarter rates with trusted partners because they assess more than just your credit score. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans from $1,000 to $50,000. You can get approved the same day, can receive funds as fast as one business day, and if debt is taking over your life, it's time to get a fresh start with Upstart. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash commentary. That's upstart.com slash commentary. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash commentary um christine i wanted to point out i just need to find this as we're talking uh christine you 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 uh brought up something uh interesting uh which is that uh, biden gave the speech yesterday uh sort of a speech whatever saying you know we can't let our guard down you know, got to keep going, got to let our guard down. And there's a picture uh, of CNN, you know, the CNN image uh, uh, while he's giving it. And they're kind of like Lurking. in the background, not out of focus, <laughs> about five feet away with a mask looking the other way is Kamala Harris. I, I, I posited in jest, of course, but I posited on our group text that, that she's in fact been named his secret service detail because <laughs> everywhere you see Biden, you see Kamala. And there was, there were, there was a little news report the other day. Um, I forget if it was in Politico or Axios or one of these other, you know, politics oriented, uh, uh, sites that, that said there, that, oh, it's a deliberate strategy because Biden, and there was a little snark here. Biden was really kind of, upset with how he was treated by Obama at the beginning of the Obama administration or how he was sidelined, how he was, you know, not given enough visibility, which by definition is the job of the vice president. You are not number one. You are number two. You're a support role. You're Anyway, so the idea is that Kamala Harris is being given all this prominence because Joe Biden, from personal experience, felt, you know, marginalized when he was vice president. I don't buy that at all. Um, there's an obvious co-presidency type strategy or co-presidency light. They won't say it outright, but it's it's very clear that she's, you know, she's swearing in a lot of the cabinet secretaries. She's she's face forward on a lot of meetings. She's calling foreign leaders. They're putting all that news out there. Um, 
And I, I just find it notable that there's not as much coverage in the same way that there would have been had this been Pence's role at the beginning of a Trump administration, for example. Then I think we would have seen lots of trend stories about how, you know, this, there, you know, the, the evangelical right is taking over the White House and Pence is being given all this secret power. I just find it notable. Um, now a lot of people think it's great because they're like, look, it's this first woman of color as vice president. She's such a wonderful role model, et cetera, et cetera. I don't like Kamala Harris, so I don't, I'm not at all persuaded by that. But as a, but as a, uh, as a power matter, it's interesting and new, and it should probably be explored a little further. <laughs> well, John, you had said something interesting, I think, in response to, to the the photo uh, on our text. You said it's a it's a collective presidency. Is that is that the term you used? Yeah, it's like an amalgam. Yes, it's like a, it's it's an amalgam of the Democratic Party that is now in the White House. Yeah, uh, you know that and, and the, the the coronavirus bill, the relief bill itself, is a suggestion of that. That it's like, okay, give us your wish list. We'll throw everything together. We'll put all this stuff in. To, you know, we're gonna go up to about two trillion. Tell us what you want, and we'll 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 put it out there. And uh, uh, and Biden sort of is sitting there, says some stuff. Uh, you know, we're not getting the. He's having cabinet meetings. Here's a photo of the first cabinet meeting. Here's a photo of everybody. He's almost around. like here's this. It, he's almost like the modern monarch in, in England. Yes, thank you. Because the, the transparency. So the other thing that this administration is not doing is releasing its roles, right? So obviously people are not physically coming to the White House. Usually the White House releases logs of phys- the visitors' logs, but they're refusing to release the virtual meeting logs, which is basically at a time of lockdown, what it, the same thing as a, as a physical visitors' log. They're totally untransparent about that. He's yet to have a press conference where he actually has to field, you know, aggressive questioning if that would even happen with him. But yeah, no, there it, it is very monarchical, and so I guess she's the I don't know the queen regent. I don't know what her <laughs> role would be then. <laughs> Better monarchical than, I mean, the sort of triumvirates that usually replace strongman leaders. Um, you know, so if we could right. be looking at the you know the Stalin Kamenev Zinoviev triumvirate. Yeah, um, I mean, we also have uh, evolved into something much more uh, familiar. I mean, we also, uh, I guess, should take note of the fact that uh, the White House withdrew the nomination of Neera Tandon yesterday to be a director of the Office of Management and Budget. No, no John, um, she asked them to release her. That's always yes. how it is, right? She, yes, she, yes begged yes. for release. And, and, the, and the statement said uh, she'll, she'll have another role uh, uh, in the White House, which is sort of, uh, which is interesting because, yeah, I mean, she didn't have to have a confirmable role and they decided to give her one and... Uh, we are back in the question of whether or not she somehow was chosen in part to be a potential sacrificial lamb. I know that really doesn't quite happen uh, in the same way. Also, you know, to be honest, before we really assume that that that's the case, it is a giant pain to be a nominee for, for an office, uh, particularly if you haven't, I mean, the, the amount of paperwork you have to do just to be, considered or something like that you have to produce all of your it, it's like it's like being audited and then you have to you know put down everybody who ever had a connection with you every possible conflict of interest that it's like these forms are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages long and it is agony and i just don't think people go would go through it uh with the notion that they would you know they understood that they were basically gonna you know they they weren't gonna they were they didn't have a shot so um or that they were going to be a sacrificial lamb anyway uh it's interesting uh that was fun uh and obviously so there's one scalp uh which is actually fewer than most administrations get in the early going maybe there'll be more we don't know maybe there'll be more uh over the course of the next couple of months that 50-50 senate is not good for this you know i mean uh piss off mansion or cinema and you're a dead person so you know uh we'll 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 see we'll see what happens got one more uh thing to talk to you about uh of course Neera Tandon uh lived and died on Twitter Twitter social media and you know what if she had anonymized herself she might not be in the pickle that she's in today uh of course social media and big tech are not looking to uh, deplatform people like Neera Tandon. They're looking to deplatform people like you. Uh, And you could just deactivate all your social media accounts to avoid this, but that would be giving the left just what they wanted in the first place. So instead of letting big tech sites try to control your speech, 
Why not revoke their right to your data? That's why I choose to protect my online data by using ExpressVPN. Look, they track your searches. They track your video history. They track everything you click on, and then they sell your valuable data to each other. So when you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address, which makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell. And ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from eavesdroppers on your network. And honestly, the ExpressVPN app couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone and computer and you're protected. So say no to censorship. Take back your online privacy with the VPN I trust at expressvpn.com slash commentary. By visiting my link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash commentary expressvpn.com slash commentary to protect your data today. So speaking of things that people sell on the internet, merch.commentarymagazine.com. We got that keep the candle burning t-shirt. We got that crushing morosity sweatshirt and t-shirt. We've got commentary magazine logo t-shirts and tote bags. And I think we got mugs coming. We got some mugs coming. I'll be telling you about it. We have to see what they look like. We ordered a sample. If we like them, we got mugs. You asked for mugs. We got your mugs. You better buy the mugs. Okay? That includes you, the guy who complained that I set up straw men and that I'm... Uh, now I'm, you're mugging I'm, them, mug, mugged by morosity. M- right? Yes. I mean. Mugged, <laughs> mug. Yeah, that's right. That's right. A neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by morosity. <laughs> so... Uh, by the way, Crushing Morosity guy, the guy who invented the phrase Crushing Morosity, you emailed me last year and said, hey, I'm the guy who invented Crushing Morosity. Please get in touch with me again. I was looking for your email and I couldn't find it. We need to send you a shirt um, so that you won't sue us. Anyway, so uh, with that, uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Noah, and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.